0: Good morning, Grace family. It's always a pleasure to be with all of you. Uh, If you're new here, my name is Junior Jamriambit. I'm one of the elders here at Grace. Occasionally, I get asked to preach, and I get the privilege this morning of restarting our series in Luke. So welcome. You know, there are common human experiences that we all go through that remind us that yes, we are human indeed. Regardless of our background or where you come from, there's something universal and sweeping about us all. Take, for instance, traffic. Nobody ever gets up in the morning and says, man, I can't wait to get on that gridlock on the five. I really enjoy being trapped in a metal box on wheels and breathing in carbon monoxide. Right? No, nobody, nobody says that. Another example would be take puppies, for instance you don't even have to like dogs. Puppies are universally loved and adored. Conversely, think about cockroaches. Okay, so when you see a cockroach crawling on the floor or on the wall, nobody ever says, oh, look, how cute. It's usually met with screaming and yelling and the sudden urge to tense up and to slowly reach for something like a shoe or a magazine in order to kill it. And don't ever let one get away because now you're thinking about it all night. You're like, oh, man, when's this guy going to pop out again? Is it going to get me at night? Am I going to open a cupboard and it's going to be staring at me with those ugly antennas? Oh, gross. Other human experiences. You ever walk in a room and forget why you walked in there? Huh? Or if you have one of those detachable showers and you didn't realize it was pointing at you and you go and you turn it on you get all wet before you were ready for it, right? And all these different human experiences... Remind us that, yes, we're in this together. There's a commonality that, yes, we are doing life together. In our passage this morning, the Bible addresses something else universal in the human condition, something very serious, and that is our universal destitution, meaning that we're all deeply spiritually impoverished, and we can never do anything for ourselves to save ourselves, And no amount of good effort or good will could make us pleasing and acceptable before the Lord. No, for all have fallen short of the glory of God. And it's an unpopular view because we as a society want to be perceived as independent, self-sufficient, and autonomous. But with that dire news of universal destitution, For all mankind, there is hope and there is good news because there is also a universal solution. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when faced with the person of Christ and his message, we must make a decision either to reject him or accept him. And here in Luke's gospel, we're going to see the mission of Christ and the messianic mission to show the people, including the covenant people of God, their universal destitution, And that he, Jesus, is the ultimate solution for all humanity and all people. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. And we'll be in verses 14 through 30 this morning. Verses 14 through 30. Before we read it together, let me summarize the text. So up to this point in the gospel of Luke, things are going rather well. We have the prophecy of the virgin birth and is fulfilled. We have the prophecy out of Zechariah where he prophesies about John the Baptist breaking 400 years of silence, God ushering in a new era, Jesus being baptized and the spirit descending upon him, the spirit leading him into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan and only to emerge victorious. He was going to synagogue to synagogue and all were glorifying him. Things are going quite well. But now, things take an interesting turn. And after the temptation account, Luke now draws attention to Jesus returning to Galilee. And it's about a year since the temptation, which the Gospel of John fills in that gap. But here, Luke focuses on his time when he enters Nazareth, Nazareth, where he grew up. And it was his custom, and he attended the synagogue there like a religiously faithful Jew. He reads a passage out of the scroll of Isaiah, sits down and begins to teach. The people marveled at his words, but as he continued to teach, they started questioning him and doubting him, asking him to perform miracles to prove himself. But he doesn't perform miracles, but instead brings up Old Testament examples of the prophet Elijah and Elisha. And the crowd reacts with hostility, these Old Testament accounts. Drives him out of the city and even try to kill him, but Jesus escapes. So the passage portrays the messianic mission and God's plan for mankind. It's a microcosm of what Jesus will be facing throughout his ministry. That he will present himself as the Messiah, give the message, and ultimately be rejected by his people. And there are three points in this passage that I want us to get, three points in one. Universal destitution, that we all fall short of the glory of God. And two, universal solution, that Jesus is the Messiah and the only way to salvation. And three, ultimate decision, that we either reject him or accept him and his message. Again, destitution, solution, and decision. So let us read starting in verse 14, and Jesus returned in the power of He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him and began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him. And marveled at his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah and when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Snidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many leopards in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And when they had heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him up down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Whew. Man, what, what an account. What's going on? So in verse 14 begins, much like how chapter 4 begins, where the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness, and now Jesus returning in the power of the Spirit to start his Galilean ministry. In this section in Luke, the Spirit's role here is to guide Jesus and anoint Jesus, specifically for preaching and teaching. The Spirit is mentioned here in just this chapter alone in verse 1, 14, and 18, and with the power of the Spirit, he taught in their synagogues, verse 15. So an, an essential aspect of Jesus' ministry Is teaching. And today, I fear that more people are impressed with acts of compassion and mercy than they are with preaching and teaching. Now, while we should absolutely have mercy ministries, compassion ministries, it should never be without preaching the gospel. We do not make God an unspoken assumption. We're Christians who proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and words need to be met with actions and our actions need to be explicitly clear that it's Jesus that drives us to the welfare of others. We're not merely humanitarians advocating for human welfare, no, we're motivated by Christ and the love of Christ. We're motivated by the desire to see people come to Christ and that's why we care for human welfare. That's what propels us to good works, which God the Father prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So good words and deeds, even miracles, could be misunderstood. And even when understood properly, may not evoke saving faith. So teaching with words offer greater precision and clarity And Jesus is both the word of God and he declares the word of God. You know, we have a food bank ministry here at Grace on Friday evenings, and we always present the gospel because we don't want to make it an unspoken assumption. And while we meet the physical needs of people, we use it as an opportunity to meet their spiritual needs, which is far more important. And preaching and teaching the gospel was at the core of Christ's ministry, and it needs to be at the core of our ministry too. And in verse 16, he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and it was his custom. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. You know, I don't think it's a main point of this passage, but I do think it's worth noting that it was Jesus' custom, his routine to attend the synagogue each week. And the synagogue parallels what we think of church service today. There was a time of singing and worship. There was a time of reading the word. There was a time of preaching and teaching from the word. And Jesus here living out, showing the importance of gathering for corporate worship. It was his custom to attend. And it was his custom to read during the synagogue. And he found this specific text in Isaiah, which comes to our first point, universal destitution. And it reads in verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. See in verse 18 and 19 here, this passage from Isaiah, the spirit is upon me. Well, it's a messianic claim. And it shows and lays out the messianic mission. And what is that mission? Well, it's laid out. There are five things. To proclaim the good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recover sight to the blind, to set liberty those who are oppressed, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, Jesus makes this messianic claim, the spirit is upon me, much like how the spirit descended upon him at the baptism, how it led him into the wilderness to be tempted, and now in the power of the spirit, returns to Galilee to preach. And this term, anointed one, is literally what the Messiah is called. The anointed one, the Jewish people, knew that this passage in Isaiah was messianic, and the crowd believing that they were the poor ones. Or the captives and the oppressed, and that the Messiah was going to set them free and change the political landscape. And yes, they were correct. The Romans were indeed oppressive. They did lose their land. However, the audience was not described in purely social- political terms. No, the primary point of the passage is a spiritual one. And it's talking about a social transformation into a new community and that of course doesn't mean that we don't take care of the poor and we don't help the oppressed of course we do Jesus did that throughout his ministry but that wasn't his primary purpose in coming his primary purpose like this passage was spiritual transformation which then leads to physical manifestations of extending mercy compassion and generosity to others and this word poor gives more insight when you look at the Beatitudes in Matthew 5 5 3, the poor in spirit. And this word poor here in our passage is this Greek word pateos, which means beggar. A beggar can only obtain a living, well, through begging. So it's not a person of a low economical status but can help himself through labor. No, it's not that. It's not that at all. It's a c- complete dependence on another for survival. And Luke uses this word throughout his gospel. And he uses it in Luke 16, talking about the rich men and Lazarus, describing Lazarus as a poor man who needed to beg and long for the crumbs off of people's table. See, this is a picture of our spiritual condition. And there's nothing we could do for ourselves to save ourselves. We're helpless. And that's universal for all mankind, regardless of our economic status. For Isaiah says, our righteousness are like filthy rags to the Lord. But understand that anyone, rich or poor, if they come to Jesus, will receive the benefits of salvation. So here in 418, it's a generalization. It's not exclusively based solely on social class, no. The description simply applies because the poor tend to respond better to Jesus because they're more in tune with their dependence, their need, and their frailty. Outsiders tend to receive the message of Jesus best. Because wealth and power can be a barrier to receiving the gospel because of of people's feelings of self-sufficiency and autonomy. But there are plenty of people in the Bible who have saving faith. If you look at the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're all rich. And even Joseph, who was born into a rich family, lost everything and then became rich again. He was all over the map. You look at the New Testament, Joseph of Arimathea, Priscilla and Aquila. And even in our passage later, Jesus uses examples of Old Testament. One was a poor widow in Zarephath. Another was a rich Syrian general who both came to faith. So it doesn't matter what your economic status is. Our spiritual status are all the same. So a strictly material and political interpretation of these verses often ignores a crucial spiritual element And Jesus later says in 6.23 that rewards are in heaven for those who suffer. So it's not a language of violent revolution, but of individual transformation within a new social perspective. Again, the church is certainly called to minister to the poor and the needy. We need to do so with the sensitivity of their plight and poverty. And our call to be the church is to meet one another's needs, to love our neighbors in real and tangible ways. And the church is supposed to be a place that expresses that vividly, better than any other human institution. And this idea of captive, captives, to set the captives free, you know, in the Old Testament, is often referred to the exile. And when referring to the exile, it's often has spiritual undertones because it's always a result of sin while they were in captivity. So Jesus didn't set free literal prisoners. He didn't even set free John the Baptist. So this imagery here in Isaiah, this releasing of captivity, the recovering sight to the blind, liberating the oppressed, it's talking about our sin and being liberated from spiritual captivity, blindness, and oppression. Isaiah says, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people and as a light to the nations to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from prison. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7. Earlier in Luke, Luke, speaking of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, he is supposed to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace. Luke one seventy seven. In other passages, therefore, since... Children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. And yes, we were held captive, we were influenced by Satan and the world, and we were oppressed by Satan and the world, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. And the Bible even talks about how the gospel is veiled, and how we were blinded before Christ and even if our gospel is veiled it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the god of this world has blinded the minds of unbelieving of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ who is the image of god 2 Corinthians 4 so these passages are talking about spiritual bondage blindness captivity and oppression and the messianic mission is to break those bond, those chains of bondage. So Jesus comes to the spiritually bankrupt to make spiritually rich through faith in him. For those without Christ are the ones that are captive and poor and blind. So it's not a political manifesto or an earthly salvation. No, people who are looking for an earthly salvation were frustrated by Jesus because he didn't deliver that. He didn't overthrow the Romans or establish an earthly kingdom or promoted revolution. Jesus came to give something far greater, something that will last forever. So it didn't matter whether it was the Egyptians, the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, or now the Romans, or who the oppressors were. He came to free his people on why they were oppressed to begin with, and that was covenant unfaithfulness. And it's important to note, as he was reading the book of Isaiah, he stops at a comma and omits the day of vengeance in Isaiah 61 because that day has not arrived yet. And that gives us hope because the judgment hasn't yet to be issued, which leads to our next point, universal solution, the Messiah. In verse 21, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So let's take some time to trace some Old Testament messianic promises because I want us to really feel the weight of this verse. So regarding the Messiah, he is to be born of a woman, born of a virgin, called to crush the head of the serpent and conquer evil for all time. He will be called Emmanuel because he will be with us. He's a direct line from the patriarch, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the lineage of the Jewish people from the tribe of Judah, the heir of David's throne, a throne that will be anointed and eternal, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the Lamb of God, the Alpha and the Omega, our Redeemer King, And the greatness of his government, peace will be no end. And he will reign on the Davidic throne and establish and uphold justice and righteousness forevermore. And almighty God, Yahweh, El Shaddai, the Lord of lords and the King of kings, he shall bring it to pass. He will accomplish it. For this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus. So when Jesus applies... This passage to himself, he is saying in this present time, much like the message of hope Isaiah brought to the nations, he is doing the same. And in fu- being fulfilled in your hearing, Jesus is saying the Messiah is here and I am he. I am the bread of life, the resurrection and the life. I am the great I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And hope can now become a reality today. Through faith in him, and he offers this to all people everywhere. And the reality that Jesus fulfilled the entire Old Testament promises everything pointing to Jesus, the living Word of God, the firstborn of creation, the image of the visible God, the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. He is our hope and our solution. And even here at the end of the book of Luke, Luke 24. Luke 24, he says this to his disciples. Luke 24, verse 44. These are my words, which I speak to you while I was still with you, that all things that were written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And in verse 45 he says then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures he set them free and he said to them thus it is written that christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from jerusalem luke 24:44 through 47, so us today as Christians now having the whole word of God, the whole counsel of God, the full revelation of God, know that Christ came and he accomplished it. It is finished. And verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled his gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? This is an interesting verse, and it's just one short verse. People were marveling at him at one moment and seemed to turn on him the next and started questioning him. What's going on? How could this neighbor of ours truly be the fulfillment? How can this common man's son make such claims? Which leads to our final point, ultimate decision. When we're faced with the person of Christ and his message, we must make a decision. So son of Joseph is a human rather than a Christological title like son of God. I think it's important that we look at some parallel passages here in Matthew and Mark to kind of get a fuller picture of what's going on. So Matthew 13, and I could just read it to you. Uh, 13, verse 54, if you want to read it later. He came to his hometown and he began teaching in their synagogue. So that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not Carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brother James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not with us? Where did this man get all these things? And they took offense at of him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. In Mark chapter 6, starting in verse 1, Jesus went out from there and came into his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands, is not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to him, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he did no miracle except that he laid his hands and a few sick and healed them and wondered at their unbelief. So here, familiarity breeds contempt. And Jesus grew up in Nazareth. He didn't come back as a hometown hero. No, clearly people remembered him. They knew his relatives. They hung out with him. You know, I think it's safe to infer that for most of Jesus' life, he didn't do anything overly remarkable or to give hint that he was going to be the Messiah or somehow great. He lived a fairly quiet and peaceful life. And I hope we take comfort in that, that we don't have to be some big-time celebrity, evangelical or otherwise, to be pleasing to God. No, we just need to be faithful daily. So Jesus senses this hostility growing up, and before it escalates too quickly, he says to them, verse 23, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So Jesus knew what the crowd was thinking. So this proverb, physician, heal yourself, basically says, prove yourself, Jesus. All these miracles you've been doing, do it now. Prove yourself. Prove the claims that what you're saying is actually real. But he doesn't give in the demands to perform miracles. No, Instead, he uses Old Testament examples of Elijah and Elisha showing that faith must come first. Then you will see the miracle. Then you will see the work of God. No, we don't dictate the terms of how we approach the Lord. We don't dictate the terms of our relationship with Jesus because he is Lord and we are not. So here, verse 25, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel In the days of Elijah and the heavens were shut up for three years, six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only Zarephath in the land of Snidon to a woman who was a widow. Verse 27, there were many leopards in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. Interestingly, at this point, Jesus brings up a low point in Israel's history. If you want to read the account? It's First Kings seventeen, which refers to a specific famine and judgment of covenant unfaithfulness. And because of their faithfulness, God's provision and prophesying sign was absent. Because a lack of faith alienates God. Because those who are without faith, it's impossible to please God. For those who come to Him must believe that He is, and He is a rewarder for those who diligently seek Him. Hebrews eleven six. And now the crowd is in danger of doing the same here in the present. Let's summarize these accounts. So the Elijah account, famine in the land. There was a time of war, so the men were being killed off. That's why there were several widows. So the men were gone. There wasn't any food. There was a great famine. And Elijah did not attend to the Israelite widows, but was sent to Sniden, specifically outside of Israel, and Zarephath was there at the gate collecting sticks to make her last meal. She knew she was gonna die. She had a son, they were gonna eat their last meal, and they were just gonna die, and she knew it. But Elijah says, No, you give me that last meal, and the Lord will provide. She believes Elijah. And then when she goes and and tries to get flour and oil, it did not disappear. It replenished itself. It's like an Old Testament version of multiplying the fish and the bread. And they had their fill and ate for days. It was a miracle. Now, Elisha's account. If you want to read the direct account, it's 2 Kings chapter 5. So Naaman was a commander, a general of the Syrian army. And they were actually at war with Israel. And he would go on these raids and pillage Israel, villages in Israel, towns in Israel. And he was a leper. He actually kidnapped a girl from Israel and it was that same girl that suggested to him, hey, you know, you should probably see Elijah or excuse me, Elisha for that leprosy. He can heal you. And upon hearing the news, hey, he gets excited. He gets all this bounty, money and clothes and he has his king write a letter to the king of of Israel and he goes and he presents, hey, heal me and I'll give you basically back everything I stole from you. And the king of Israel Tears his clothes and says, what? My God, can I resurrect people? This is unreasonable request. You're just here to make trouble. You know I can't do this. And I love this next part. Elisha hears of this. And his reaction is like, why is the king tearing his clothes? Why is he acting all dramatic, man? Everybody just relax. Okay? Send him to me. I got this. They send him to Elisha. He says, hey, Naaman, dip yourself seven times in the Jordan River. He actually, Naaman, he actually gets upset. He's like, what, that dirty river? There's way better rivers in Damascus. I'm not doing that. That's just silly. And his men urged him, hey, you know what, Naaman, we made the trip down here. You're already here. Why don't you go ahead and give it a try? What do you got to lose? And he says, fine. So he does it. He follows Elisha's instructions, and he is healed of his leprosy. And he goes back to Elisha and he says this, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. 2 Kings 5.15. So leprosy is a type of sin. It's Naaman who acted in faith and then was cleansed. This is analogous to forgiveness. So what's going on in these stories? Again, God is operating outside of Israel. And in the cases of Zarephath and Naaman, Faith preceded the miracle. You have Zarephath, who was on the verge of starvation, gave what she had in faith, then lacked nothing. You have Naaman, who initially was resistant, but went in faith and was cleansed and witnessed the miracle. See, we must act in faith believing, trusting in the Lord, then we will experience the miracle. The miracle of seeing Christ for who he is. The miracle of seeing lives being transformed into image of the Son of God. The miracle of letting past hurts and pain go and being healed of bitterness and anger. The miracle of taking a once abused child and turning him into a loving husband and a caring father. The miracle of restored marriages and reconciled relationships. The miracle of dying of cancer and yet having profound peace and hope. The miracle of racial unity and harmony and love. See, this extension of the gospel of the Gentiles, it was an afterthought. The Jews rejected Jesus and like the covenant infidelity that drove Elijah and Elisha to the Gentiles, it now drives Christ to the Gentiles. This divine election was even happening in the Old Testament. So remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in your flesh, remember at that time you were separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and of God's household. We are family. And it's because of Christ. And Israel rejected the prophets and now must face a decision with God's new messenger, Jesus, Jesus. And when when Elijah ministered outside the nation, it's a prophetic example that teaches us that although his own homeland will reject him, people will respond to the work of Christ. In verse 28, when they had heard these things, all the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow, uh, brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff But passing through their midst, he went away. So again, Jesus didn't meet their messianic expectation. They believed they were the favored ones and the chosen ones and that they were going to be liberated from oppression. But it was a different kind of oppression he was there to liberate them from. And this infuriated them. Not only did they not meet the expectation, but Jesus taking the message outside of God's chosen people to a different people group, to different ethnicities. And this upset them. They tried to kill him, and Jesus escapes. Now, I don't know if something supernatural is happening here or how he escapes or its divine powers or if Jesus simply had ninja-like quickness. I don't know. Regardless, it was not his time to die yet. And he will lay down his life. When is time? He dictates the terms. There are two things I want to bring up in this passage. One, Jesus didn't care about being nice. You know, sometimes I think we think the 11 commandment is to be nice. And Jesus didn't care about being nice or well-liked by everyone. He cared about the truth. And I said earlier, the book, things are going well in the book of Luke. But then here Jesus comes in and offends people. What are you doing, Jesus? Hey, man, things are going great. You're having great PR. And now you come in in your own hometown and get everybody upset at you to the point where they want to kill you. Jesus didn't care. They needed to hear the message. And often, Christians today, I worry that we use a barometer of being well-liked in how well we're doing, how inoffensive we are. Now, that doesn't mean that we're unnecessarily harsh or we're intentionally offensive. No, we need to be winsome. We need to be gentle, and we need to speak the truth with love. But despite all those things, understand that when we speak truth, people will be offended because they're in darkness. Will we hold our ground and boldly, courageously proclaim the gospel to all people despite that? The second thing I wanted to point out, let's back up a little to the temptation account, which Jackson preached a few weeks ago. In Matthew's parallel account in Matthew 4, Matthew has three temptations in this order. Turn the stone into bread, throw yourself down and have the angels catch you, and offering the kingdoms of the world if Jesus would bow. Luke's account of the temptation also has the turning of the stone to bread as the first temptation, but he flips the second and third one. So now he offers the kingdom of the world to Jesus in the second temptation and then he ends the temptation as throwing yourself down and have the angels catch you what's going on here so in Luke 4:9 satan says if you are the son of god throw yourself down from here and in the passage we just read today at the end of verse 29 brought him to the brow of the hill on which the, their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. So we have two units back to back that end in the same way. And at the core of both accounts, Satan says, Jesus, prove yourself. Do this. And in our account, the crowd at its core says, Jesus, prove yourself this way and do this. So, there is doubt at the core of both accounts. And I think in our own hearts, are there areas in our life that we say, Jesus, prove yourself? There are areas of our lives we might not want to give up or that we're holding on to because we don't believe that the Lord will bless us, that we don't believe that He will satisfy us, that we don't believe. Stepping out in courage is going to benefit us. And it might not initially. So we say, Jesus, prove yourself. And at its core, it's the same heart as this crowd. We may not want to kill Jesus, but we doubt him the same. Because faith comes first. Then we see the miracle. So in summary, the nature of of Jesus' ministry. He is Jesus, the anointed prophet who announces a new era and passes this salvation as the anointed Messiah in Isaiah 61. And he's proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord to bring salvation to the destitute. And his message was to the Jews first, then it will be taken to the Gentiles and throughout his ministry, he will experience conflict, but he will emerge victorious. Implications. I'll go over this quickly. To the non-believer, if you have yet placed your faith in Jesus, you are now faced with a decision, a binary decision that says we either accept him or reject him. Is he the son of Joseph, a mere man, or is he truly the son of God? He did not leave room for neutrality, and that is the decision you face. Will you step in faith and allow God to show you miracles? To the Christian, I say this, number one, be bold, be courageous, even in the face of an onslaught. Carl Truman said the days when Christians could be both respected in their society and faithful to their beliefs are drawing rapidly to a close. Are we going to stand in the face of social pressure? Or we'll be called racist, bigots, intolerant, whatever phobic they could something in front of will we fold because of that and understand that this world is going to pass away his word is forever number two we need to reach the loss the poor the blind the captive the oppressed we need to care for the poor because spiritual transformation has physical manifestations and will we use those opportunities to present the gospel to apply the gospel, whether it's the non-believer and trying to meet their spiritual needs or the believer to build them up in the faith. We need to reach the loss and build the believer. Number three, faith comes first. Faith comes first. Whatever it is in our lives that you know you're holding on to, or things that you may question, ask yourself at its core, am I doubting the character of God? Or will I step out in faith and allow him to show himself faithful? Lastly, and number four, messianic expectation. The reason why they were upset at Jesus is they had a preconceived expectation on how he was gonna do things, how he was gonna write things, and he didn't meet those expectations. Maybe we have a preconceived box on how things uh, might play out. If I was in charge, I would do things this way. And it may not be remotely close to how Jesus is going to do it. Are we going to surrender our will and expectations to him? And I'll end with this. I'll just read a short portion of Psalm 107. And it says this. There were those who dwell in darkness in the shadow of death, prisoners in misery and chains, because they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he humbled their heart with labor and they stumbled and there was none to help then they cried out to the lord in their trouble and he saved them out of their distress he brought them out of darkness in the shadow of death and broke their bands apart let them give thanks to the lord for his loving kindness and for his wonders to the sons of men let's pray Father God, thank you for who you are and what you've accomplished in your son. And it's his messianic name we pray this. Amen.